Hello everyone and welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. Well, it's this time of the year, and I'm not talking about the countdown until the Christmas or holiday season. I'm also not talking about the word of the year or any other review that is compiled and curated by, air quote, specialists. I'm talking about you, or better, about your data, or even more close, about your musical behavior, taste, and most played songs, yes? It is the time where all Spotify users get their personal wrap-up of the year. But this episode is not about the making of the wrap-up. This episode is about musical genre types, technology and research with musical behavior. My guest today is Glenn MacDonald, data alchemist of Spotify and founder, programmer and producer of the Every Noise at Once website that holds and updates examples from all genre types Spotify is tracking. We talk about personal music algorithms, genre categorization, subsets of listening, what you can learn from listening data, and how listening behavior shapes communities that can be the start of a new genre. Glenn shares with us how he compiles playlists and his Spotify account and also memorable sonic experience when he heard the band Low for the first time live, opening up a door to a transformational moment. Okay, let's dive into the conversation. Welcome, Glenn. Welcome to The Power of Music Thinking. Hi, thanks. I'm a fan of your website since um, quite some time. And before we dive into, yeah, in, into, into it, um, one question at the beginning. What was your first sonic experience or record or LP or even a performance that had an impact on you? So I think for me, the the moments that are that are the most memorable are the ones that feel like opening a door and discovering another world is behind it. It's a world that presumably lots of people on the other side of that door already knew about, but that I didn't know about. And I, I have those all the time. I think the, the first, I'm not going to answer the first one. I'm going to answer a recent one for, for a reason. Um, the one, one of the many ones that sticks with me is the first time I saw the band Low play live. And I, I picked this one because Mimi Parker, the drummer and singer in Low, passed away hmm. a couple of weeks ago. And so I've been thinking about about her and the band a lot. And you know, I'm I'm like I grew up a rock fan. Like Rush was my favorite band for a long time as a kid. And I, I grew up in Texas in the late seventies and eighties. So it was like album rock era. And so yeah. like Foreigner was normal music to me. Like if you just <laughs> yeah. I expected a random song. It was probably going to be a Foreigner song. Uh, and 
So I, you know, I grew into a more adventurous listener over time, as I hope most people do, uh, but still like pretty focused on high energy, you know, metal and rock and loudness and volume and busyness and, you know, Neil Peart remained my favorite drummer. Um, and and so I like low on record. They're a very slow, spare band, but the really transformational moment was seeing them live for the first time and really getting a sense for how much interesting music they made out of what seemed to me at the time to be a few elements. So Mimi, who's a drummer, would stand and would stand in front of like one floor tom and a snare and one cymbal. Uh, and so for me, used to seeing you know, Neil Peart's kit with like 20,000 toms and chimes and triggers and mm. you know, like 50 different cymbals that make slightly different splash sounds. Um, thing, maybe like standing there, not even using her feet, like uh, oh. doing a thing that looked, you know, physically simple. Uh, but with musically so powerful, that was that was definitely a transformational moment of of realizing. All right, like it's not that I was wrong about all the other things that I like. I still like them, and they're still amazing. But here it was like opening a door and realizing, oh, and and all that wonder can be produced in these other ways. <sighs> and so that was that was a gateway for me to a lot of other bands who you know, explored what can be done with fewer elements instead right. of more elements. And it was, it was through a live performance, right? So, that, and, and what you, would you call that door? Was it like from, okay, um, was it your first concert? No, no, no. I mean, I was, I was already in my twenties when I saw them. Um, so I'd seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of shows, but that, and, and I'd heard, You know, it wasn't the first like quiet band I'd heard either, but it was it was seeing them live that really made me focus on what the elements were. Because, you know, you hear the recording and you don't see the people, so you don't, you're not quite as aware of exactly what's going on. Mm -hmm. The physical presence of the people, right. like when you hear their song, you don't see them not doing things. Yeah. And when you watch them live, you see them not doing things. And it's the not doing things that was that was okay. really powerful for me. I, uh, I'm, I don't know them. So um, are they, is it a trio or how many people are playing? What's the... Yeah, it's it's a trio. I mean, they were no more because um, they can't exist without Mimi. And it was a couple and... Um, Alan Sparhawk plays guitar and maybe played drums and they both sang and they've, they've had various bass players over the years and have done some things as a duo too. They're from Duluth, Minnesota. They're cool. They were one of the like uh, signature slow core bands in the, in the nineties. Nice. Yes, I will definitely. They're, they're, they're amazing band. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, Glenn. Now we we dove into the music and to the first uh, sonic experiences, but but who are you? What do you do? And what do you do for a living? Who am I? Well, that's a very large question, but at least the yeah. what do I do for a living part is somewhat answerable. I work at Spotify. Uh, 
I got there by virtue of the acquisition of a startup called the Econest that I was working at before Spotify. The Econest tried to do music recommendations and sort of cultural and acoustic music analysis as a service for other companies that were doing streaming music and eventually got bought by Spotify to do that just for Spotify. And so I've been at Spotify for long time now, eight years, I guess. Um, and my funny job title is data alchemist, which yeah, sounds good. A long story behind it, but the, the point of it was that it's not a data scientist. <laughs> but if you think of a scientist as trying to find the truth, uh, an alchemist is just trying to like turn things into other things. So that's what I do. I try to understand what is possible to learn from all this listening data that we have and turn it into listening experiences or insights or something. So I work a lot on personalization algorithms and on genre categorization, thus the websites um, and sort of anything that extracts human insight from data patterns, much of which has to do with communities of people, either communities of interest, which is how I think of genres, or physical communities like the people in a country or a city or demographic groups or just like any any subset of people or any subset of listening, which could be a subset of people or it could be a subset of times, like Christmas listening or are there Thanksgiving songs? is sort of the same shape of question to me as what are they like in Estonia or what what is what do a uplifting trance fans really like in uplifting trance at the moment yeah so what can you track you can track where people uh, listen to that music you know from what country they are and um i, I it's all anonymous so it's just the big data that you can uh, gather Yeah, I mean, you know, a Spotify account, you have to pick a country yeah, because of licensing. So we, we, with every account, we know what country it's attached to. And we, although we don't track your location, like in your in the Spotify client or anything, uh, we know what IP address requests come through. Uh, and so we generally have a sense of approximately where you are at the city level. Mm. Or at least where your your device thinks you are, which isn't right. always where you are, but it's it's usually close enough to to try to get collective insights. Yeah, right. And is there any artificial intelligence involved, or how does it work? So because there's a lot of data, a lot of data points, and someone has to to try to to make these combinations. We do a lot of. AI or or really machine learning at Spotify. I don't. I'm like the old-fashioned math department. So I write a lot of SQL queries and do a lot of, you know, technically boring math, like dividing things by other things and sometimes even logs and square roots. Um, none of it is very complicated in mathematical terms. And it's sort of unsatisfying if, if you're trying to be a machine learning engineer then you wouldn't want my job because i'm not i'm not generally pushing the technical frontiers i'm trying to figure out stuff about music and it's amazing how how good simple math is at, at that like the proportions of listening of anything coming from one place versus the rest of the world tells you 
usually what you need to know if you get the thresholds right without anything fancier. Mm, okay. So the, the the reason why why I contacted you was what I said earlier. I'm a big fan of your website, Every Noise, everynoise.com or Every Noise at Once. And to the people or to the listener that don't know the website, I will put them in the show notes so to, just to check them out. But actually, it's like one big um, internet page with different genre types. And um, and and you and um, uh, you you also count them. So as of today, um, I saw it's your own five thousand nine hundred and eighty-seven different genre types, and it uh, all the yes. information comes from Spotify. But you had this website earlier. Maybe you you, you tell a little bit about what is everynoise.com and there's um, yeah and, and how does it yeah how do, how it works? Yeah, sure. So the project underlying it, of course, is this genre taxonomy. And that that began at the Echonest uh, before we were acquired and and really took off once we were acquired because at the Echonest, we, we were powering these things and we had a lot of data, but we, what we didn't have is a lot of direct listening data. And so the, the like the corporate acquisition dance was we were, we wanted to provide a service to Spotify and to, to everybody. Um, and to do a really good job of that, we needed listening data from them. And of course, every potential partner was leery of the idea of giving us their data when we also had their competitors as partners. So uh, getting acquired was like a, sort of a corporate inevitability. Um, so then with with the help not only of more listening data, but of more people, because I don't I don't do that part of the project by myself by any means. Um, we have kept at it. So I think the first when I first put up every noise, the the website, it was visualizing maybe four or five hundred genres. Mm, okay. Just kind of where we started. And I I I think basically I got it to fifteen hundred or so via my own stubbornness and then <laughs> got more help. And I have a particularly uh, amazing coworker who is responsible for most of the two thousand to six thousand jump. Um, and the yeah, so the the original source of the of the visualization was a diagnostic tool because one of the things we did at the Iconest was we tried to analyze music uh, programmatically for psychoacoustic attributes that model how you experience music so like energy how energetic does this song seem to you hmm. is a thing that you can't really do just by signal processing so it's done with machine learning and again that that, that part I don't do um, but when we were trying to learn new things, like we were trying to model how electric or acoustic are songs and how do they have vocals or are they instrumental? Yeah, yeah. Through automatic analysis, like use, useful things to know. So just to, to, to understand it right, if you say if a song had vocals or not, so there was not one person listening if there were vocals, so the system was was finding out that there are vocals on, on that particular song, right? That was the idea, because wow. there are 65 million songs, so yeah, having right. a person, <laughs> having people listen to them all and, and punch a button to say whether they're vocals seemed like not tenable uh and 
that was that was in, it already seemed untenable in 2012 and of course the amount of music being uploaded to spotify every day is now order, an order of magnitude or more yeah. higher than that so so it's it's good that we didn't we didn't go down that path but the hard part so that that's not hard to do like you do a bunch of training examples you have you get some college interns uh, to listen to, you know, a thousand songs and tag mm-hmm. them. And then you feed them back to a machine learning process that says, well, if of those thousand songs, if these are the ones with vocals, then, yeah. then I can try to see what are the, what are the telltale signs of that and apply that logic to the other 65 million. And the hard part of that is telling how well you're doing because you can't listen. You can't go check the other 64 million and change. <laughs> otherwise you would have tagged them yourself to begin with. And it turned out that like aggregating those scores by genre was really helpful. So if you're looking for vocals, then you want to see that like classical piano should rarely have vocals. Mm-hmm. And you know, country music should probably have a lot of vocals. And so it's so the the first version of that map was a scatter plot of genres to debug the training of, of these attributes. And then after a while, I'm like, actually, you know, even, even apart from this you know, technical task, this is kind of an interesting way to look at things. So there were several iterations of like making it readable and usable on itself, as opposed to just diagnostic. And that's how cool. it, that's how yeah. it came about. So the, the front page is, I think of it as a map, but in technical terms, it's a scatter plot. Like it's, it's, again, it's not very sophisticated. It's just an XY plot. And then there's, there's a bunch of fiddly code that bumps the genre names around. So they're, in, they're not on top of each other. So you can read them, but the up and down axis goes from mechanical at the top. So like synthetic instrumentation and rigorous timing, like the space mm-hmm. between each beat is exactly the same. So okay. tech house and stuff and you can get, click on the names and it'll play you samples that tell the story very nice so you click on the top and it'll go doo, 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 doo. and as you go down it gets more both more acoustic in the instrumentation and more flowy like human timing you know in a classical piano piece if you you know plot it out at microseconds probably no two notes are exactly the same number of microseconds apart because the pianist is like manipulating the flow of time as well as the the the, the pitch space uh and then left right left is sonic density so things that are very steady full sounds which could be like roaring black metal where it's all distorted or like classical organ which is a very different sound but also a very steady mm-hmm. like you know not no spaces between the notes generally and then the right side is the opposite so spiky or bouncy so hip-hop and reggae are over there but also like political oratory or people reading poems aloud or, or audiobooks would be there where they're, they're not really beats, but they're spaces between the sounds. Yeah. An interesting way to, 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 I just want to say to look at it, but it's also to listen to it. Um, but who came up with the genre names? Because it's with the nearly 6,000 different genres. I, I can read a few of them. I have the, the website open. It's like Latin American Baroque, uh, American 21st century classical. Um, it's Troubadour, Hawking, Chakra, 
Apahaka, never heard of. And, and it goes on like a drupat. Okay, I know that one. A jazz harp. So there are 6,000 different uh, types. Who came with the name of these types? And there must the, so, yeah, someone so must said, oh, this is so Tuvan folk. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. So it, none of it is automatic. So there's always a human um, saying, all right, this is the thing we're going to add. And this is what it's going to be called in our namespace. And most of the time, that's obvious and boring. Mm. Um, so, like, yeah, 21st century classical, like, that's, that's, I guess it's coining a name in, in the very technical sense. But I think, you know, it's, it's obvious most of yeah. the people there would, even if that's not the exact phrase they would always use to describe themselves, they would immediately recognize, yes, to, yes, that's, that's a thing. It's also bird song. Yeah, sure, bird song. Like, okay, I mean, cool. We kind of called it like vocalizations of birds. Yeah. So some humans said, "All right, bird song is shorter and, and catchier." The so the the thing to understand why there's six thousand of them, and also to understand the naming challenges, is that we think of genres basically as communities, communities of artists or listeners or practice, usually some combination of all three. And so the tricky cases are where there are multiple different communities with different artists and or different listeners, different audiences uh, that think of themselves in the same way, with the same name. So indie pop, for example, is a, you know, a term that has been used by a bunch of different communities for themselves in different places and different times. And so we have you know, at least a minor challenge in figuring out unique ways to refer to all the things that might be referred to the same way by the people in them. And every once in a while, the interesting naming problems are, we, we do recognize the existence of genres that are mainly driven by listening patterns hmm. and not necessarily by the artists themselves thinking of themselves. As, as being peers. What, we, what would and be those, a listening pattern? Well, we can find clusters of listeners who share fondness for the same artist. Mm. Even when those artists, you know, it's not necessarily obvious that those, obvi that those artists share a, a style and they don't necessarily come from the same place. Um, but we can see that, yes, fans of, of these artists tend tend to be fans of the others so you know a sort of notorious one of those that, that got some oh, okay. a mixture of interested and incredulous press was one that i called escape room okay and so this is like the, the extreme of naming is my total failure to think of anything descriptive <laughs> or 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 obvious for one of these listening based clusters was like in retrospect i might have called it intersectional pop it's, it's mm -hmm. like lizzo and the space around lizzo sort of into pop in one direction and into hip-hop and trap in the other direction and often with a sort of social justice angle or mm -hmm. awareness of something um and so we could see this audience in the listening data very clearly, but there wasn't a name for the kind of thing that those people like, nor for those people. Mm. And 
in when when forced to come up with one in order to represent it, I totally failed to think of anything that would make any sense. And so I just I escape room was like all this music was was very hot and trendy and escape rooms were trendy sort of becoming a thing at the same time and mm-hmm. there was some notion in my mind about that there was a tra- derivation from trap music and escape rooms were about getting out of a trap and so it kind of made evocative sense to me but given that there was no like emergent name for this music from its listeners it was just a give it a name so i can show it to people and then people can can say, you know, this 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 my thing or not. So the best result for me was seeing people say, I don't know what this name is and I've never heard of it, but when I look at the list, <laughs> yes, this is my music. <laughs> uh, all right. Is, you you found exactly my taste. And that's like the goal of the whole thing. Is because this is also used, let's say, in the app. Can, could I search in the app like Ukrainian classical or like uh Latin American classic piano is this how people would search? Yeah, there's there are playlists for all the genres, so you can mm-hmm. find them, and they're surfaced in the API. So they're used in external apps, and we use them in Wrapped at the end of the year. So yeah, right. they appear in various places. Absolutely, and they're also used a lot behind the scenes to feed into recommendations. So there's a bunch of things that you would might get on your homepage in the Spotify app that aren't labeled with genres, but are there using the genre taxonomy behind the scenes to try to find stuff that you might like. Mm, okay. Okay. Because on the website, you also can do your own research. Like uh, I just saw today the, the um, something, did you call this the aqueduct of youth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. That was a, that was a thing I did for a, a presentation at the pop conference a few years ago. Oh. The theme of the pop conference that year was was youth, the listening and music of of youth. So yeah, so yeah, with the subtitle brings you kids' music, so you can listen young. <laughs> so this will be if you're if you're a little bit older and maybe in in different uh, genres, then you would find something that you might have never heard before. So it's also good for exploration into a different field, also for trend researchers. They also could use the. Um, the, the 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 website to yeah to find out what's something that's coming up and um we must say because it's um i just um, said um these are the 5987 uh, genre types but every time a new genre type is um, uh, is added to 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 the list and what are the criteria or when happens this or how does it how does this work Yeah, so there's like three ways that we add genres. One is just continuing because, like, that's a lot of genres, but it's not all the all the things that that we want to model. So there's just ongoing work of figuring out, all right, what what have we not covered, and a lot of that has to do with you know reach the the places in the world that that streaming has reached last or mm-hmm. hasn't reached yet. Um, so every time. Spotify gets ready to go into another country, and there there are there are not very many left. So this this part of it will eventually um, slow to a crawl 
we're like, all right, we're going to launch in Egypt. So mm. right, let's spend some time like reading up on the music of Egypt and, oh, and yeah. see how, what, you know, what's our coverage like? Do we have Egyptian hip hop? How many like subgenres of Egyptian hip hop that nobody else knows exist? And do it, do they have enough artists on, on Spotify for us to model them satisfyingly? And and yeah, so that this ongoing work is like one of the things. Um, the second thing is just uh, emergent genres. It's so like new stuff happens. And generally, you know, we, we try to model things when they have a sort of critical mass. Um, so we're not, we're not really looking on my side for like, there's, you know, one guy has invented a new thing mm-hmm. and and given it a name. Like that's not, that's not quite what we're, what we're after. We're after like a, a community has started to build around this idea mm-hmm. and that community has a collective name. That that's might, really behavior. Know, some, one person. Yeah. Or like there's a scene there. It's got, it's got listeners. It's got a thing. Um, so like drift funk is like a super popular, fairly recent development. Um, and you know, we reach a point where we, we see, you know, we have a bunch of things that monitor trends and how people talk about music. And so they can see when a new term is coming up that we didn't know about before. And we, some human still has to go and look and say, all right, can, can we model that with what we have? Mm. Um, or is it all like not on Spotify? Um, and then the last one is, have a bunch of things which I refer to as the genre minor, which are bits of code that go through listening data, looking for lumps of taste that we don't have labels for. And so that's that again is is it's not an automatic process, but it finds it finds lumps of what might be gold or might be just like sparkly. Trash or something, mm. and and puts them on the screen so a human can look at them and go either no that's not a thing or yes it's a thing but it's not a genre it's like that's a record label like the things are all, they all go together but it's just like one record label not a not a wider cultural movement so we don't need to add that and sometimes it's like that's a thing or mm. that's not quite a thing but it it gives me a hint at what might be a thing and I can go try to do a better job of modeling that. I think that's an interesting way to to look at the whole modeling. Um, you know, one approach would be that you start with classic um, pop, classical music, pop, opera, and all these, and and, and they are all also there in it. Um, but as more as a, so, the question is sometimes: Is there a, first a genre, and then you have the bands or or the orchestras playing that genre, or is it what you just said? What what I think that sounds a little bit like the the, the, the your, your second category. So there's something coming new which doesn't fit hundred percent to one of these big big uh, big uh, genres. So that's um, that's that, that's that's interesting um, from from one part. So more the let's say the musicology part. Some people listen to it and say, "Oh, this is this." And this is that. Um, but the other part, what I think it's so interesting is the the community part. So it's not about what 
let's say the musicologists say what it is. <laughs> it's about how different people at a certain time, at a certain place in a certain region, listen to something that is my maybe constructed from different angles. So I think that's an interesting, very interesting approach. Yeah, me too. And like the, at one point I tried to make a list of the kinds of genres, mm -hmm. like the kinds of distinctions represented by the genre space. And it, even that got lost. Like some of them are geographic, some of them are historical, some of them have to do with lyrical content, some of them have to do with instrumentation, some of them have to do with like production styles. Like there, there's a, yeah, there's a wide variety of not just a variety of things, but a variety of kinds of things, which is in it like, it's meta interesting to me to try to think about, right. What kinds of distinctions do we make? And like, how do we, how do we recognize units of culture? Mm. And I think that's interesting. And, and it's also my question um, for, let's say the power of music thinking podcast. So it's not, about music or not only about music what we're looking for is also to make some kind of analogies to the other world so if you're let's say the, the data alchemist <laughs> and your data is let's say music so what other data alchemists that maybe have totally different kind of data what could they learn from the way uh, from 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 the every noise uh, uh, website i mean i think the most portable thing i mean i have to answer this question practically because as spotify gets into things that aren't music uh inevitably someone from whatever new thing it is will will get my name and i'll get a message that they want to talk to me and the question will be well you know give me some hints on how to apply what you've done with music to blah and so like podcasts was was the first blah and so i had to think about all right what how does podcast listening differ from music listening and how does that affect what kind of insights we can get out of it? And, you know, the interesting obvious difference between music and podcasts is music. You have people listen to songs over and over again, so you can use repetition to try to get a sense of how much people like things. And they, people don't generally do that with podcasts. Like you listen to an episode once you'll, if you really like a podcast, you listen to all the episodes but you generally won't listen to them all 50 times like you would a Taylor Swift song. Uh, so you have to use different techniques. You have to basically you have to focus on the show instead of the episode to have any, any real signal there. And, you know, then audiobooks comes along as the next thing. And it's even worse because you don't like you have a book. The book is sort of like a show and the chapters are like episodes, but then you don't, it would be wrong to to try to measure your affection for a book based on the number of chapters it has. Mm, absolutely. And that, even with an audio book, it would also be interesting who's reading the book. And maybe that's also the link with the podcast. So in the podcast, you have the host and that voice more or less is, let's say, more or less the same or more or less the same rhythm in most of all the 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 conversations but if you have a guest then every guest is different sometimes you have a more speed or more more volume and sometimes it's more maybe more intimate and maybe more pulses in between is this something that is also uh let's say analyzed 
It is, and and you're you're sort of getting an important point. Like much of what I do in terms of personalization is trying to figure out what the listener is thinking or responding to, and at what granularity it's like most helpful to model that. So you know, in in music, you sometimes you like a song just because it's that song, and like you really love the song, but you don't necessarily love the artist or the genre or the era or the country or whatever. It's just like, no, this, this song just does it for me. And sometimes that song is a part of why you like the artist and it's really the artist you're attached to. And sometimes it's the genre and you, you like, like I will listen to any Gothic symphonic metal band. My, my analogy for this is like, I love burritos. Like I will eat a bad burrito. A bad burrito is still, I would still enjoy it. And like, if you ask me for a dinner recommendation, I'm probably not going to recommend to you a bad burrito place unless I know that you really like burritos and you just haven't been to this one yet. And so Gothic symphonic metal is like, that's a thing that, you know, anybody who makes it, even if objectively I can tell that this is not the best band at this thing or ever, I'm just like, but I don't care. I just love, I love this thing. I love to hear anybody do it. Um, so it's the same kind of thing with with you know with anything in life. You're trying to figure out what is it, what is the theme that unites the things that you like. You as a listener, you as a as an eater, you as a human. You know what is the common element in your friends or the yeah. places that you like to travel or you know the clothes that you like to wear. There's there's something probably that unites some of them. And so like understanding you know, how many clusters of clothing taste do you have? Oh, like, yeah, right. What's I have my black, my black hoodie taste <laughs> and I have my shoe taste. And those are probably correlated. Like other people who also wear black hoodies probably tend to wear similar shoes, maybe, but not necessarily. So yeah. And maybe it's not only about the color, maybe it's also about the fabric, the kind of, uh, how it how it looks and and, and that's a little bit also compared to music um for for the power of music thinking book i did a, a playlist uh with uh, 25 different versions of the house of the rising sun so you could yeah. say the original genre that's from the animals or i i don't even know if it's the, the original is from the animals but they were the most famous and then a lot of people are covering yeah. this with different genre different genre types even some yeah. instrumental and 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 i I've, i found that so interesting to 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 offer people to find out for themselves what triggers them? Is it the song that they know? Is it the lyrics that they understand? Or is it the atmosphere or anything? So I, I yeah, I, I really love that part. And, uh, and yeah, so it, it's just also one way of organizing these uh, genre types uh, with the example of, uh, of one song. I've, yeah, I've, I do a bunch of those actually. Really? I make a bunch of playlists of, oh, cool. of you know hundreds of covers. So that the one, the one of of seasonal relevance every year, I maintain a playlist of the new covers of Last Christmas by Wham, <laughs> done since last Christmas. Um, and I've been doing it for, I forget four or five years or something. So there's there's I don't know fifteen hundred of them 
total. This year, I think I'm up to 180 or something. Um, and yeah, it's it's fascinating. I pretty much any time there's like a new super popular pop song that I like or that I find is interesting in some way, I'll do one of these. So I have one I'm working on for Antihero by Taylor Swift. Mm. And we're we're sort of in the golden age. I mean, maybe it'll be even more golden. Maybe this in retrospect won't seem like the golden age, but compared to when I was growing up and you know, you had to put out singles, you had to put out vinyl to to get music to people. This is the golden age of of cover versions because you can mm. do it and upload it and and try to find the audience of of people who liked the original and that just wasn't wasn't practical in the same way in, in like 1984. So yeah, and two of my favorite bands, you know, so of course Spotify wrapped um will have come out by the time people hear this and my top five artists will almost inevitably include two bands who just do covers. They just do basically oh. pop punk slash metal versions of everything. One is called <laughs> First to Eleven and the other one is called The Animal in Me. They're both great. And almost every week they have one or two new versions of whatever's popular and I'm just, it's like the burrito. I'm I'm a sucker for a pop punk version of of anything, and having it's super interesting to me to have two bands that basically do kind of the same idea because they always come out differently, and I'm always interested to hear. All right, that ah, that's interesting. <laughs> they took a slightly different take on even the the seemingly seemingly formulaic exercise of make up a, a pop punk version of Antihero by Taylor Swift. Right. It's also interesting how um, it also gives you an indication how they listen. What type of the original song do they bring into the new genre? Sometimes you have to translate something from instrumentation, for example. So that's that's uh, yeah, yeah. That's the power it, of, of these cover songs. To they, they show they tell a lot um, about decision making, about transformation. Yeah, and you learn different things from covers of new songs than from covers of old ones because they've had like more time to sink in. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a, as a big Kate Bush fan from back in the eighties, I was super pleased that running up that hill yeah. got popular again through Stranger Things, both for Kate Bush's sake, but also because that then resulted in hundreds and hundreds of covers. And it was really interesting to me in particular to hear which artists chose to stick to the various details of Kate's vocal delivery on that song and which did something different. Mm. Like almost everybody had to do something different with the instrumentation, even if they're just sort of trying to reproduce it. But she has her, her performance of that song is very, very particular and like notes slide and there's, you know, wordless bits to it that are very mm. distinctive. And a lot of people try, you know, try to reproduce that or are faithful to it in one way or another. And then some people just say, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to do this song and it's going to have the same melody, but it's not necessarily going to have the same phrasing. It's sort of like, I remember the first, the, my first friend from another country when I was a kid, um, and uh, 
she was French and she would say things and I would try to like reverse, like back out her accent and say them like the way without, like I imagined there was a way to say that word, Mm -hmm. a sort of correct way, true way to say the word. And then I would say it one way in my accent and she would say another way in her accent. And I would try to find the true way. And so covering sometimes is that it's like, what was this song's essence before Mm -hmm the singer sang it, which is tricky if the singer wrote it and the only way you know it is the way mm. they sang it. Yeah, absolutely. I have one example from, um, or um, let me say this first. Um, if you listen to cover versions it and you listen to, let's say, the song for the first time, you don't necessarily know all the history. So you you can listen one one song for one example. I was once in a car and I had Little Wing from Jimi Hendrix and it was in the 80s. And the woman who was in the car with me, she said, oh, someone covered Little Wing from Sting because that's the version she yeah, heard first yeah. so it's also the perspective of what you hear first will determine what you experience as a cover version i'm gonna say you know i, I grew up my parents were folk singers so i grew up with folk music and neither of them happened to be bob dylan fans mm-hmm. so i don't i don't know we had any bob dylan records in the house but we had of course tons of bob dylan songs sung by Joan Baez or Judy Collins or or somebody else. So for me, that that first wave of like, oh, that's what this song sounded like originally was like hearing Bob Dylan's originals for all these songs that I had heard in, in other singers' treatments. And yeah, and that 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 applies to yeah, everything in life. Like you you think you understand a thing by how you encounter it, but that it has a history before that and you may have encountered it in what is like historically a weird way and learning that and understanding you know what what is weird about what you think of as normal is yeah. uh, interesting and super valuable yeah maybe that's also a very good point for yeah the rest of the of uh, <laughs> of the world so there are different perspectives to to it different kinds of um yeah exp- um, telling something uh, in a in a different way and people might understand it also in a different way um maybe one last question um from spotify you're you're tracking songs but now you also have podcasts and also spoken books would you also try to to make new communities um of these three ingredients so that you say oh there's um, something new that people who listen to this kind of song also listen to that kind of podcast and maybe that kind of book or maybe that kind of playlist is there something let's say cross uh, how would you call these the different silos <laughs> um analyze yeah. to 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 understand the 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 listening behavior of people In, indeed and one there's like a practical reason to do that um so audiobooks is probably not like we just started that so there's not there's not a ton of data yet um and but there's there's plenty of data with podcasts so one 
like practical thing that we do is try to recommend podcasts for people who haven't listened to any podcasts before. So once once you start listening to podcasts, um, then we can say, oh, I see that you're into hockey podcasts and like entrepreneur podcasts, and so and and anything that that Jennifer Lopez appears on. Um, but if you haven't listened to any, then we can at least say, well, we know what kind of music you like, and here are some podcasts that people who like this kind of music like disproportionately tend to listen to. And I mean, often those are, that's because they're music podcasts. So it's like, you know, a hip hop podcast tends to be popular with hip hop listeners. So if you listen to hip hop, then you might like this podcast. Not only is it a correlation, but it's also like the content. Um, but, but there are others that are not, you know, you can understand if you know what's happening in culture, but they aren't as direct, like country music fans often like auto racing podcasts. And that's, that's like, makes mm. sense if you understand like American demographics. Um, but it's not like there's not a lot of country songs about race car drivers and the podcasts don't feature country musicians. It's, yeah, right. it's a cultural correlation, not a, not a direct one. I would, would, yeah, there be a, yeah, would there be a tip for the power of music thinking podcast? Because actually with every episode i'm talking to someone different and most of the time it's also different <laughs> different kind of music and different kind of work which have a relation because of that person is listening that kind of music and is doing that work but in every episode it's it's different which is actually the pattern is there something that 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 would fit to yeah did you have any thoughts about this yeah my guess is that it probably doesn't like a relatively small percentage of the podcasts correlate to a music genre fandom. And my guess would be that this one doesn't like it crosses genres, crosses music genres. So your audience is probably, yeah, your audience because genre fluid like you not <laughs> indeed. That's, that'd be my guess, but I could, I could look. All right. Oh, this would be nice. This would be interesting. Glenn, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you would like to to share? Is there anything that you would say, oh, that's an interesting one? I mean, I, I think, you know, we spent this podcast mostly talking about what I do. And uh, now I feel like I should have a podcast and quiz you about what you do, which is also interesting. Um, but, but I'm sure you cover what you do uh, in the rest of your work. The criteria of people in um, that I have a conversation with are they have to do something special and are musicians are doing something with music that's interesting. So that's my my one and only uh, things. It's always about music and it's always about business. And when we talk about business, we can m make the flip to music and we talk about music. We flip it easily to 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 to, to the business that, that you're doing. So that's that's my thing and that's also something i do with uh, with clients and then it's not about me it's, it's about how do you listen so my hypothesis uh, often is that the way you listen and this could be behavior in the way how you listen but also what you listen to so that's the relation exactly to your every noise a website with the different genre types um i would say there is a pattern and It would be interesting to think about if this pattern also applies to how you listen 
to your family, to your coworker, to your team, to your organization, to your society. And, you know, it's up to you how big you want to make it. And that, that music or let's say that our ears might guide us to something that could help us to, yeah, to have a more meaningful uh, collaboration. And uh, if I may add the last one also for the planet so that we solve problems, maybe not by uh, looking at it and thinking about it, but maybe close the eyes, listen to it and, and sense and feel that we say, oh, this might be something that you would like to, to do. Yeah, I, I believe that too. I believe that music and food are ways to reach people across cultures and get them out of what they think about as their boundaries and like feel something about what the rest of the world feels or tastes or hears. Right. And, and to literally sharing. So what you did, you say, how, what kind of bands you're listening to and how you listen and sharing this to me. And I write it down. So, oh, that's interesting. Never heard about that band. Low, never heard about it. But I will find out and I will find out two things. I will find out something that I've never heard before, which will be interesting because someone that means to me or I have a relation just was talking about it and i might understand better how you talk and what you mean so that's really and uh, for me the most important thing to to bring these um, things to, together so glenn thank you very much for doing this <laughs> and also thank you very much for 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 this incredible website and we'll, i will put uh, everything in the show notes also um, how people could reach you if they have a question so thank you very much for being on the power of music thinking sure thanks for having me thank you so much for listening i really appreciate this because listening is one of the top leadership skills and i feel honored about this It is my mission to find, create and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies. If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. And more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com.